I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. So let's get started and let's bring everybody out. She plays Dolores Wise, mother to Corey Wise. DC Nash. Playing the role of the adult Kevin Richardson, Justin Cunningham. Jovan Adepo plays Antron McRae as an adult. Welcome, Jovan. In the role of the adult. Youssef Salam. Chris Chalk. He plays the adult Raymond Santana Jr. Welcome, Freddie Mayares. Jonathan King is executive producer on this project. Jonathan, and one of the executive producers of When They See Us, Barry Welsh. He plays Corey Wise as a young man and an adult, Gerald Jerome. In the role of Kevin Richardson as a young man, welcome Asante Black. Playing the young Antron McRae, Khalil Harris. Ethan Harisi plays Yusef Salam as a young man in the role of Bobby McRae, Antron McRae's father, Michael K. Williams. Mikey Joseph, the defense attorney for Antron McRae, is played by Joshua Jackson. One of the executive producer on When They See Us, Jane Rosenthal. And finally, the creator, the executive producer, the writer, the director, the visionary who shared every step of this film with the exonerated five. Welcome, Ava DuVernay. Hello, you. Hello. Hello, 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 hello. This is a moment we're having right here. Yeah, it is. it's a beautiful moment. It's a beautiful moment that we're having right here, that this film is so much more than a film. It's touched the zeitgeist in a way that few things can, especially in the world that is so overcrowded, as we know. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that moved me so is I was on Twitter and I saw this from actor LeVar Burton. Those of you who are old enough to know, you know LeVar Burton. Famously played Conta Kente children <laughs> in Roots. And he tweeted this on June 2nd about the series. He said, I had to keep breathing. Episode number one nearly broke my heart. However, I will keep watching because this is essential viewing for every American, as essential to your understanding of America as was Roots. Brava, Ava. Brava. That moved me because essential viewing, was that the intention? Yes, that was the intention. Hello, everyone. We're on a real Oprah Winfrey show, OMG. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even believe it. I'm just gonna keep on going. Just keep going. But yes, no, the goal was to create something that stuck to your ribs and that wasn't junk food. It was to create something that was gonna be a catalyst for conversation. Entertainment serves all kinds of different purposes. I love horror, I love romance, I love action. But to be able to uh, create something uh, with my collaborators that is actually gonna move people to action, 
move people to evaluate what they think and how they behave in the world was our goal. And so to hear something like that from Mr. Burton, uh, Roots being such a seminal series, uh, something that really shifted the culture was you know, one of the best reviews we could get. You know, I remember, for anyone who still doesn't know, the original title for the series was, we, the working title was at least Central Park Five. Mm -hmm. And I remember when there was some talk amongst the producers mm -hmm. about whether or not we should keep that name or not keep that name. And you insisted that the name be changed. Why? Central Park Five felt like something that had been put upon the real men by the press, by the prosecutors, by the police. It took away their faces, it took away their families, it took away their pulses and their beating hearts. It dehumanized them. They are Yusuf, Antron, Kevin, Raymond, and Corey. And those are their names, and we need to know them and say their names. And so, so it became really important to think about that at every level. As a director, my job is to look at everything, and the title was, was a big part of it. It's the first time you meet the movie is when it walks up to you and says, hi, my name is. And so uh, we need to be more than Central Park Five. I know you're always, and you know, all directors and producers are anxious when something's going to open, and even when it's on Netflix spread uh, over 190 countries, there still is that, is anybody gonna watch? And then you wake up and it's trending. <laughs> it's just trending. Yeah. What did you think? I, I was stunned that whole day. You know, because with Netflix, it drops in 190 countries at the same time. So you're, I'm getting tweets from the Netherlands, Brazil, Compton, you know, Iowa. It's all over the place. You hit that Twitter translation button, it's on IG, Instagram, it's Facebook. Everything was overloaded with the response. And I thought and I hoped that the piece would be respected. I really wanted the men's stories to be told and wanted them to be heard. But I didn't understand that it had the possibility to kind of shift the cultural conversation in the way that it's doing it now. That was kind of what you hope anything will do. Yeah. But this, on the day that it dropped in those 190 countries, it kind of exploded in a way that I think is a surprise maybe to Yeah, I was going to ask, were you Was it a surprise for you? Uh, I was surprised that it was trending, I can yeah. tell you that. Yeah. Because I woke up Because I didn't think everybody was going to be watching, that many people would be yes. watching at the same time. Yes. Even in the United States, I woke up that morning at 6 a.m. and it was trending at like number 16 and I was like, wow, some people are... Oh gosh, this is great. And throughout the day, it just, as, as people woke up across the country, and I guess people don't work or they watch Netflix at work. <laughs> but on the way to work. On the way to work. On there the were people work. watching on subways, on their lunch breaks, but it just kept going up. And by the time it hit the evening and people got home from work on a Friday on the East Coast, it shot to number one and it stayed there all night and into the next day. So. Yeah, I thought, it was, I thought it was one of the best, most powerful uses of social media I've seen mm -hmm. recently. So. You were surprised by the public. Have you been surprised by Linda Fairstein's response? Um, no, I wouldn't say I'm surprised by it. Okay. I, I, think it, I think it's expected. So Linda Fairstein said that the series is a quote, her quote, basket of lies, unquote. Linda Fairstein, as you know, was a prosecutor in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, and she led the sex crimes unit during this case. And it's, of course, been reported that she has stepped down from the board uh, positions, some, and has also stepped down from charities and has been reported that she's been dropped by her publisher. What do you have to say about that? I think it's important that people be held accountable. And that accountability is happening in a way today that it did not happen for the real men 30 years ago. But I think that it would be a tragedy if this story and the telling of it 
um, came down to one woman being punished for what she did because it's not about her. Yep. It's really, really not all about her. She is a part of a system that's not broken. It was built to be this way. Yep. Okay? Yep. It was built this way. It was built to oppress. It was built to control. It was built to shape our culture in a specific way that kept some people here and some people here. It was built for profit. It was built for political gain and power. And it is coming upon us. It lives off of us, our taxpayer dollars, our votes, the goods that we buy that are made inside, inside of prisons. It lives off of our ignorance, and we can no longer be ignorant. Mm -hmm. And so the goal of this, okay, Linda Fairstein, okay, Elizabeth Lederer, okay, all of these people on this particular case who need to be held accountable. But the real thing that we are all trying to do, all of the artists who collaborated with me, she's asking the question, but she knows the answer. Because she wants me to do it, because she loves me. Go, Ava, go, Ava, that's what you're <laughs> Our real goal is to be able to say, Go, America. Let's do this. Let's change this. And you can't change what you don't know. So we came together to show you what you may not know. Now that you know, what will you do? How will you change this? That's our goal. OK. Good job. So now I want to talk to the boys. Uh, these beautiful young actors who play Raymond, Kevin, Yusef, Antoine, and Corey as young men. Did I, I, I'm going to start with you, Ethan. Did you all understand the weight of the story when you started? Yes. Researching the case and watching the Ken Burns documentary and, you know, reading the script and everything, you could tell. Had you heard of it before the Ken Burns documentary? I had not, no. I had not heard of it before I auditioned for it last year. That was yeah. my first time. Really? Yeah. Khalil? I hadn't heard of, of the case prior to getting the audition either, but I feel like we all understood the gravity of it and and... We, we met each other practically, you know, strangers, but there was that immediate sense of, of brotherhood and there was that immediate sense of family because we were all united in a common goal. And I feel like when there's a bunch of people united in a common goal, the result can be so powerful. Mm -hmm. So as young black men yourselves during filming, some of you were actually the ages of the exonerated five when they were put into jail. How did you prepare to do that? Yeah. Um... Hi, Oprah. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Asante. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> but um, I, I feel like the, the biggest preparation was just talking to them themselves, you know, getting a sense of who they were, just seeing the lights that they were, how radiant they were. You see these guys and you never think that they went through what they went through, you know. They could come out bitter, you know, at the world, but they come out smiling and happy. Whenever Ava describes Kevin, she describes him as a big teddy bear, because that's what he is. So I wanted to take, you know, kind of the, the good in him and the sweetness and put that into, you know, try to transform that into the innocence, because pain and sorrow isn't all that he is. You know, there's so much more to who he is, to who these five men are. This is one tragic part of their life, but they have entire lives outside of it as well. So I wanted to portray that too. Beautifully, beautifully. So what can we say about you? I don't even know what we can say about you. Jarrell is the only actor to play one of the Exonerated Five as both a young man and also as an adult playing Corey. Everybody's performance is seared on my heart, but I, I felt gutted by yours, I have to tell you. And I have to say, what, what you did 
you brought us into solitary confinement. And that moment where you say, nobody believes in me, nobody wants, I could feel that for everybody who's ever felt that in their life, that moment. And when that damn air conditioner worked, we could, we felt cooled by the breeze. You did that so well. So I, I don't have words to actually describe what your artistry did for all of us. I, I am curious, we all are curious, about what was the process of you embodying Corey Wise? Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Trying not to cry right now. Um, thank you, Oprah, so much. Um, it was a, <clears throat> the hardest thing I've ever done or um, allowed myself to do to get into that emotion and, and to get into that mentality. Um, I just want to start off by saying, bottom line, I could never be Corey Wise. No one could ever be Corey Wise or fill those shoes. I just did my best to embody him, and that's my bottom line. It was a multiple step process for me. It was intense. It was a lot of, a lot of layers for Corey Wise. I think if you meet him, you'd, you'd see that he is probably one of the most unique person you'll, you know, you'll ever see or, or you'll ever meet. Uh -huh. It's finding those quirks and those, uh, those physicalities that make Corey Wise who he is. Um, it started with the voice for me. I did two months with the vocal coach uh, and just learning how to speak like Corey, which is, it was the biggest challenge in itself. Um, I learned a simple trick that uh, allowed me to put my voice in a deeper resonance and, and get that Harlem accent going and, and get rid of that fast speaking Spanish voice that I got going on. And um, once I, I, I found the voice, I think, and I think you can contest to this, it, it kind of just went down the body and into the legs and it became, it, it was so weird. It's the first time I ever felt like I truly stepped out of my own body and stepped into somebody else's. Um, and it was because Corey allowed me to do it. I spent a lot of time with him walking in the streets of Harlem. He bought me a pair of sneakers the first time we hung out. I was like, <laughs> like don't buy me these kicks. He was like, I have to. I'm Corey Wise, Corey Wise buys Corey Wise sneakers. <laughs> and I was like, I want those right there. Um, and and that's, that's his spirit, and um, that kept me calm. Even as an audience member, when you're watching this type of show, you feel that weight, you feel that pain, you feel that anger. Um, so just to be on that cold floor in the cell and just to be alone day after day in a scene by yourself, it, it wasn't hard to simply think about Corey and think about the fact that I'm only spending about three months trying to tap into what he's doing. He spent 12 years behind that cell. Yeah. So Javon, Chris, Justin, Freddie, and Jarrell all played the men as adults. So I want to know how you all approach bringing their humanity to life. The world knew them as just a derogatory headline for decades. That's what we're saying. But from this day forward, we call them the exonerated five, mm -hmm. not the Central Park five. Mm -hmm. Everybody spread the word. Mm -hmm. uh, Jovan, how would you answer that? How, how did you do that? The main thing I wanted to do was get, to, get a chance to uh, meet Antron and and try to get him to open up to me and just really figure out, I guess, the core of his story. And I was fortunate enough that Ava sent me out to Georgia to, uh, to meet Antron, and I spent the first day just spending time with his family and his kids and his wife, and, uh, and uh, Raymond was there at the time, too, and I just, I listened. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the issues that is coming forth 
and the reason why this is so much more than a film and is a moment for our culture is because people who ordinarily would not be exposed to these stories, but because of Netflix, they are, now get a glimpse into how challenging it can be to put your life back together after being incarcerated. And I thought you all did such a beautiful, beautiful job of that. You did. Mm -hmm. Did you did you learn something yourself about that process? I think for me, getting to know Kevin, I realized that I, I tend to forget about a lot of things. I like forget that I have a certain level of privilege in my life. And I sort of forget that my freedom can be taken away at any moment. And I move through life sort of forgetting about that and uh, not realizing that. And, and getting to meet Kevin, I, I sort of understood uh, about his sister and his family, how, how much they supported him and how much they fought for him. And they were always there for him and that support was always there. And it's, for me, I learned from, from this experience that I can never forget but there are always people in your corner. They're always going to be fighting for you. Mm -hmm. Freddie, I heard you said that working with Ava was like a master class. Yes, absolutely. You know, Tell this is why. my first experience uh, getting to fully realize a character. Um, not only that, realizing a living, real person. And that pre presents its own sets of challenges. You have to honor their truth. In a story like this that has such emotional weight, and the responsibility that I, as an actor, have to uphold. Fortunately, I had Ava on my corner. She was always encouraging me to go deeper. She was supporting me and constantly, constantly pushing to go further. And I learned every single time that I could. There was always that. room to go deeper. Yeah. And as an actor, um, we have to be vulnerable to the circumstances that are presented. And it's challenging having to confront these kinds of circumstances, but without honoring this story, and without putting ourselves in that position, this show will not have the success that it has today. So Chris, were, were there any moments on set where you were particularly struck by the fact that what you were doing or experiencing the Exonerated Five actually went through? I will say the two most important moments on set, one, walking into a makeup costume room with all black people, which doesn't seem like a big deal. But everybody up here knows that's impossible. And that is, that is a testament to what Ava represents, and it is everything. And then second, just hanging out with Dr. Salam and seeing how he has transcended his pain and become such a leader for people in his circumstance inspired me to just do more, be more, be better. Like, if he can do it, please, everybody here can do better. Ava has said many times in the press, when a person is incarcerated, I think this is what comes through too, that the whole family is in prison and we rarely focus on the family and the injustices and how that impacts them. Michael K. Williams. <laughs> Michael grew up in New York around the same time these events happened. What did you pull from to bring the role of Bobby McRae to life? Hello, Oprah. Hello. <laughs> yeah. My mom loves you. Thank you. Um, I, I, I remember the fear. I remember the fear of um, not wanting to be lumped, not wanting to be 
generalized with them. You know, um, I would see these men, these young boys on the television, and I would hear what they were accused of and what they had Confessor. confessed to. And I'm a victim of Wilden. These scars on my face, I got jumped. I got jumped by a pack of, of other young boys, you know, and I almost lost my life. I know what Wilden looks like, and I know what it feels like. I know that trauma. I know what it feels like to almost lose your life being jumped by a group of men. So um, I had that trauma, and then I, I would look and I would see, it just, it, I didn't see that in, to, in the screen. I didn't see, it just wasn't making sense, but the narrative was, in my household, something didn't add up, right? But then it must add up because they said it was true. Yeah. They confessed, that's all we had to go on. I just remember the fear and the trauma of um, even changing the way I dressed. You know, I didn't remember that until I got on the set and I started to dig into the, the, to, the context, to, to the context of like, you know, what they were going through. When I remember what I was going through, I changed the way I dressed because I was afraid that they would think I was one of them. Wow. You know what? I remember years ago doing an Oprah show and there were fathers in the audience and I remember this black man stood up and said, every father has a dream for his family. And if he cannot fulfill that dream, it leaves a hole in his soul as well as in the hole of his family. And I thought, maybe you saw that show or somehow you knew that the hole in the soul that the fathers of the world have felt when they can't be there for their sons. Because that is what you did for this role, Michael K. Williams. That is what you did. And when you were on that witness stand, and it's lit so beautifully, we can actually see the previous scar, and you are being questioned by the prosecution, and you say that you did believe that by telling your son where did that come from? How did you do that? Again, I could have easily have been one of those boys um, growing up in New York City. And unlike them, I was at risk. So I was, I was doing things that put me in a situation where the police could have picked me up. I could have been in the custody of, of the police. So, you know, um, my mom raised me. You know, I, I had to, you know, thank God for her. Um, and I, I remember the trauma I put her through of her worrying over me and everything. And then I, I saw my mom and the ignorance. My mom didn't know about what our rights were and she just knew, you go to school, I'm going to work, we meet back at the ranch. That's what I was taught. And so we didn't, there was no time to find out what, 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 if this happens, what do you do? So, you know, um, when I had the pleasure of speaking to Miss Linda, um, this, is, this is Linda McCray, this is Antoine's mom, who was a very private lady. And um, she blessed myself and Marsha, who plays her. She blessed us with like um, two hours of conversation. And she was, um, I guess, on her deathbed. She didn't live to see when they see us, right? And so um, when, she, when we spoke to her on the phone, all she said was, she, spoke, she only spoke about Bobby. She only referred to him as my husband or the father of my child. Mm. So the love and admiration and compassion that she had for him, it, 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 I knew then that I had to dig deeper. You know, on paper, he looks like a man who made some very bad decisions. He, you know, he split when the going got rough. 
But after I spoke to Miss Linda, I knew that I owed it to her and to him to dig deeper and mm. to find out what drove him away from his family. It wasn't that he didn't care or he didn't love them or he just said to heck with it. There's, like you said, there's a saying, I don't know where it come from, if a man cannot protect or provide for, for his family, then what is left of a man? And when I, I believe that when Bobby realized that he was a pawn, that he was the nail yeah. in the ceiling of his, his son's casket, I believe that the, the guilt, the, um, the anger, the frustration, and the shame. The shame. The shame. That's what you did so beautifully, is the shame. That's what you conveyed so beautifully. And that scene between you and Khalil in the bathroom where he says, I'm, ain't nobody blaming you, and then you said, I'm blaming myself. The shame. It's, mm -hmm. you did it. Thank you. you nailed that thing. Joshua Jackson played Mickey Joseph, defense attorney for Antron McRae. What did you learn about the justice system? <laughs> Nothing good. <laughs> well, truthfully, I mean, I, thankfully I'm on the, or Mickey was on the right side of the argument, but no matter what his best efforts were, and he really was a true believer. I mean, he was really truly on the right side of this argument. And what you see in the show is, is right and real. I mean, he, they put up a good defense, and they pulled apart the pieces that didn't make any sense and pulled out even evidence that wasn't supposed to be there at, at some times. But he still lost. I don't know about all y'all, but when I'm watching that, even having read the scripts, knowing where this story is going, I'm sitting there in the second episode, and I'm like, somebody's going to say it. Okay. Yeah. Somebody's going to stop this thing. <laughs> yeah. Somebody's going to put their hand up, and we can't do this to these children. Mm. And... I don't think it was that far away in 1989 either. The media narrative was one thing, but if you were in that room, if you were part of that defense team, if you were part of that prosecutorial team, you knew what you were doing. Everybody knew it was right there in front of them. And there was two trials, so they had two bites to get it wrong, and they got it wrong both times. So what did I learn about the justice system is that it's the wrong name for it. Mm. Well, you know, now we're going to talk to Miss Niecy Nash. Mm. You saved the lady for last. You began your research to play Corey's mother. You were telling me this just last night by calling Corey's mother. What was that conversation like? Um, it was hard because the one thing I can tell you would still keeping her confidence, is that her pain was so palpable. It was like right at the surface. And... Were you nervous making the call? Yes, because you kind of don't know what to say. You, you know, you, you try to lead with what you think is the right thing, and, you, and I wasn't quite, quite sure how to lean in. But my takeaway was that a lot of people may think that because something happened to you many years ago, it should be in your rear view. But that residue that was on the altar of her heart, you can't tell somebody when to brush that off. You know, there's a lot of work that is involved in that. And it was tough. It was tough. What did you learn that informed your playing of her? that at any given moment as a parent, you are doing the best you can with whatever resources you have. This is a mother who was afraid and she was vulnerable, 
but she did not feel like she could say that or express that because the weight of the world was on her shoulders to see this family through. So she masked it with anger. So I needed to find a balance of all of those things. Well, I think it's so extraordinary that for most of your life, uh, the world has seen you as a comedian. We're used to seeing you looking flawless on Clawless. And, yes, ma'am. As a fun-loving diva. So how long have you known that you had inside you this drug-addicted, verbally abusive, pain-filled mother, then finding God, forgiving the enemies, and all of that? How long have you known that that's what you could do? When I was five years old, I... <laughs> I, <laughs> I saw the most gorgeous black woman I had ever seen in my little five years of living. She had a long red dress on and her eyelashes looked like butterflies. And I said, Grandmama, who is that? And she said, baby, that's Lola Falana. And in that moment, I felt like God stamped on the canvas of my imagination, my destiny. But I, had, I thought I was going to do drama. And that was what I thought the path was going to be. I never thought being funny was anything because I got pinched in church for cracking jokes. I got put on punishment. My mama's sitting right over there, she can tell you, for, you know, talks too much on my report card. And so I always saw it, but the industry never saw it. And though the vision tarries, I waited a long time for people to understand that people who can make you laugh can make you cry. Thank you to the cast, the producers from When They See Us. Bravo. Our conversation will continue in the next episode. You can listen by downloading part two. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.